0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: Hello, C here. Listeners, Morris Bischinski speaking here. So glad that you've downloaded this bonus episode of the podcast. This is, in fact, actually a new episode of the Projection Booth, but the Projection Booth feed will not be hosting this for another few weeks yet, so you've got a little bit of an early exclusive. What has happened was Mike White has asked me to come on the show along with filmmaker and semi-regular co-host of the projection booth, Skiz Sizik, to talk about a new documentary about the ventures. The documentary is called Stars on Guitars. I love surf music. I love the projection booth. So appearing on this show was a huge pleasure for me. Once again, my huge thanks to Skiz and to Mike for inviting me to be part of this conversation. It was a whole lot of fun and I hope that you really dig it. On with the show.
2: deferred media let's make some
1: noise
0: hold your ears
1: folks
0: it's showtime people pay good money to see
1: this movie when they go out to a theater they want cold sodas hot popcorn and no monsters in the projection booth
0: everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring
1: shut it off
0: They asked me what I do, I said, well, I play the guitar. Said, well, uh, are you in a group? Certainly for us guitarists, Jeff, Beck, myself, and Eric, we've all played Ventures material
1: when we were kids. The Ventures. In the sixth grade in grammar school, every boy in my class could play Wipeout on his desk.
2: Those instrumentals led the way. They've recorded so many records, it's insane. They'd have a surf album. They would have a soundtrack album where they're doing movie
0: soundtracks. They took other people's songs and made them way better. There was no uh, uh, hmm. language barrier. It was just uh, movement. The guitar has arrived, and the Ventures are the messengers.
3: There's only two of us to begin with, two guitars.
0: There wasn't singing and a bunch of other stuff in the way. You could hear everything.
3: I can't imagine
2: what it'd been like to have heard that music for the first time it changed people's lives
0: you know none of the rest of us would be here without the ventures they were probably the first guitar teachers most of us ever had
3: this is surf music and the ventures were a really important part of it
0: everyone
2: wants to get that sound it just speaks to you directly to the soul it just was magic to me to be that popular and affect people that much just with instrumentals
0: that's saying something
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Skiz Sizek. Let's go. Also joining me is Mr. Morris Brashtinsky. On this special episode, we're looking at the 2020 documentary from Stacey Lane Wilson, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. It's a look at one of the best instrumental acts of the 20th century, best known for their singles Walk, Don't Run and Hawaii Five Five-O. The band came together in the late 50s and are still going today. So, Morris, what's your connection with The Ventures and what did you think of the documentary?
1: While I knew walk don't run, I'd never specifically followed the music of the Ventures as an entity, but I'd listened to, you know, quite a lot of surf music and I had a couple of compilations, you know, with bands like the Lively Ones and the Centurions and the Sentinels. Like everyone else in 1994, I went onto the Dick Dale train, but my love of that sort of uh, reverb-drenched guitar music really stems to my love of The Shadows as a kid. Now, I don't know about you, Skiz, did you ever hear a tune called uh, Little B, which was basically their excuse for Brian Bennett to do this big drum solo?
0: Doesn't ring a bell, but that doesn't mean anything.
1: I remember when I first heard that, I've spent months and months trying to work out the drum solo on that and absolutely failed miserably because there's only one one Brian Bennett, but it was still something to aim for. But I love that style of guitar music and it's just sort of like a, a funny thing that, you know, the shadows have never been called surf music was it because they came from england uh was it because of the name of the songs and i sort of want to talk a little bit about that a little bit later on but if like a tune like man of mystery had been called surfboard of mystery would it have been considered a surf tune and i know that the ventures themselves actually did cover apache so there is something of that connection but anyway that was my original connection to that sort of music as a kid was listening to the shadows as for the film i've got to say i really really enjoyed this I mean, it does have some of the tropes of other music documentaries like, you know, the large number of talking heads and many people who may have had no direct connection to the Ventures speaking of their love for that music and what it did for them. But ultimately, what I really, really loved about this film was it was a big celebration. I like the fact how a lot of the people in the film were talking about what the music actually did for them. And there's a lot of music talk. They said, well, this is how they did it. Here's the anatomy of the surf sound, which I also want to talk a little bit about later on. The thing is, like, with, with other music docs, there'll be a moment where they so like if it was a Beach Boys music doc, for instance, they might say, well, Pet Sounds or Smile were these big seminal moments in their career, or if it was the Beatles, they'd be talking about Revolver or Sgt. Pepper. So there's, it didn't seem like there was any individual album. They said, this is the Ventures album to have. But I, on the other hand, their tack was, wow, they had lots of albums and they were diverse. So there was the classical guitar connection, there was the the theme of colors, there was the theme of spying, whatever it might have been. I just really loved that, even though there might have been large chunks of history that you don't get in a 90-minute film, but overall where I think this film really worked for me was that it was just a great big celebration. And i got to say, Don Wilson looks like just one of the nicest guys on the planet. How about you, Skiz?
0: The first record I ever bought when I was around seven or eight years old was the ventures album where they do the Batman theme and get smart. I'd never heard of them. I just saw it in the store and I begged my dad, could I get it? And he surprised me and said, yes, that was probably 1973 or four. And to this day, it's still a beloved album. My record collection has grown by the thousands since then, and I think the Ventures, I probably have more records by them than any other artist. I think my stack of Ventures album is about a foot tall. Since 1994, I've been in a band that uh, is sort of a surf garage, mod, beat, bug music combo. And when we first formed, the majority of our set list was Ventures covers, and there's still quite a few of them that we play today.
2: Are Ventures covers covers of covers?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I guess it depends on, <laughs> depends on who you heard playing first. So.
1: <laughs> are you saying the Ventures are a tribute band? Sometimes.
0: A lot of people credit Wipeout to them, but, you know, Safaris, was, as far as I know, Safaris is the band that had the, the hit with Wipeout. But, you know, I haven't actually researched that. That's just sort of the knowledge that I've picked up over the years.
1: Well, I think they even mentioned at one point in the film that, the Ventures did do a lot of covers and they said, yeah, a lot of people imagined that Surfrider or, or or Wipeout were Ventures tunes, but they were done before, but they took things and they owned it. Their catalog
2: is fascinating and they would change with the time. So like things like New Testament in 1971, where it was just like, I, I want to say like waiter Shade of Pale is on there. It's just like these weird times that they would change they did a whole lot of love on that one that's definitely for sure one that they did so they would go from whatever was kind of popular they would just it was almost like stars on 45 kind of thing it's like hey we're going to take what's popular and we're going to do it our way they were a a huge cover band like i think they did write some stuff throughout their albums but so much of it was we're going to Take what the popular songs are. Like you were saying, Skiz, that album that I think is just called The Ventures. Yeah, with the Batman theme, the Get Smart theme, so many TV themes. It's just like, okay, cool. Yeah, this is what we're going to do with this one. I mean, they got famous from Hawaii Five-0, which was not their song. Their biggest song was Walk, Don't Run, which I didn't even know was a cover until I watched the documentary. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I thought that was 100% The Ventures. <music>
1: remember who it is that says it in the film but they said that they're less of a cover band and more interpreters and i really do like that uh, definition there are a lot of artists out there who take things and make it their own i mean we jeff buckley took hallelujah and most people sort of well, a lot of people don't even remember that it was a Leonard Cohen song to begin with but when you listen to Jeff Buckley's version you say right well he now owns that song and it's his interpretation as opposed to doing a straight cover and that's the wonderful thing about the Ventures is they could take tunes like "White a Shade of Power or indeed I heard this week Whole Lot of Love and whilst I don't necessarily say this replaces what came before it but they say, right we're going to do things our way because if you're going to do someone else's tune you might as well put your own spin rather than make it a carbon copy.
0: That Jeff Buckley version is pretty much a cover of John Cale's cover of Leonard Cohen. Right. But I'm waiting to hear the Ventures cover of Holly, Hallelujah now.
2: I would not be surprised if they did it.
0: I just recently got a Ventures album. A buddy of mine sent it to me. I'd never seen it, and it's it's uh like a, from the 70s called Only Hits. And, uh, and he found it and didn't like it. And I was like, man, I pick up every Ventures album I can find. So he he gave it to me. And it's, it's another one of these things where it's only hits, but it's not their hits. It's a bunch of other people's hits and they do like live and let die. And I can see clearly now and Frankenstein. It's unlike any other Ventures record in my collection. I can't say it's like in my top 10 favorites, but, uh, it was certainly interesting to hear.
1: I didn't do the research on this Skiz, but you being the Ventures guru here, did they ever record an album of, say, like uh, Halloween favorites, like Monster Mash and the like?
0: I should have looked through my records, because if they did, I'd probably have it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear them do that. So, Skiz, what did you think of the doc?
0: This is sort of a touchy subject for me, because it's one of those things where it's it's a documentary about the Ventures, and I love the Ventures, so – yes, I'm going to want to see this film and I'm going to get a lot out of it. The filmmaker in me, I had some complaints here and there about the filmmaking itself, but I hate criticizing other filmmakers' work and tearing it apart because I've had people do that to me and I know that it sucks. And and I, I try to keep an open mind that not every documentary filmmaker can afford all the archival material that should be in there. And with this film, there were so many places where people were Telling me something that I thought, man, don't tell me, show me, you know, or don't tell me about that song. Let me hear that song. You know, so I don't know whether they just weren't able to get the rights to all that stuff or just didn't bother, but there was a lot of uh, repeated information that I thought. Yeah. Actually, I didn't even know what the running time was as I was watching, but I thought if your film is over 90 minutes long and you have multiple people saying the same thing, then that shouldn't be your final cut and then i checked and it it was under 90 minutes <laughs> i thought oh man they could have removed some of these people saying the same things or saying things that i mean there were some things i think weren't exactly accurate open up that space for it, there's all that live footage of them but we don't hear them playing we just see them playing it's like man i want to i want to see and hear the ventures you know i only saw them live once and it wasn't in their heyday so i i would that's what i want to see Again, my apologies to the filmmakers. I know how hard it is to make these films, and I did enjoy it because it's a Ventures documentary, and my God, I love the Ventures, so thank you for making it.
2: Yeah, that kind of off-brand version of Walk, Don't Run that they play, I think, through the credits and a few other times, that was really rough. That was rough for me. It felt like when I used to work at a a cable station, we subscribed to these um, CDs of... Songs that sounded like other songs. So it'd be like the one that I stole from the TV station was the grunge one because it was so funny to me where it was like, hey, this isn't Pearl Jam, but it kind of sounds like Pearl Jam. It's like going to go like three quarters of the way through and then we'll twist it up. And so. They had that like weird version of Walk, Don't Run during the credits, and I was just like, oh, no, that's, that's wrong. Stop doing that. Yeah, I kind of wish that they would have looked at surf music a little bit more, because I know there's a, a filmmaker who's trying to get a surf music documentary made right now, and I would love to know more about surf music and how the ventures fit into that scene and what makes surf music. And like you were saying, Morris, there's great times where it's like, Hey, here's a fuzz box. And I'm like, okay, cool. Tell me more about that. All right. I want to know more about the twang. I want to know more about the echo. I I want to know what surf music is and how these guys kind of fit into that scene.
1: One of the things that I really, really appreciated as I mentioned earlier on is that they did go, I think it might've been Jeff skunk Baxter from Steely Dan, who's talking about the, surf sound and what made the surf sound and really when you think about it there's not too many music docs out there at least not many that i've seen that take even the the cursory time to go and explain what made a particular sound great and they do take some time in this film so like you know, for instance they're saying right well it was the fender guitar you know the the combination of the the stratocaster and the reverb and, and the amps to give that clean sound and you know, the use of the whammy bar. And I think that they make that balance, at least in my mind, they make that balance just enough between someone who's coming to this completely clean, who isn't a musician, and someone who is a musician who will say, yeah, look, I know that, but at least you're taking the time to sort of show this. And then they talk about the Moss Rite guitars, which I hadn't even heard of. Uh, and, and so that, you know, they came to this deal and there was a signature a signature Don Wilson Mosswright guitar for like three, four years that they went and used a you know, good bit of sponsorship, but it also got them the sound that they wanted. So I love that they sort of took that time to do that.
0: The things that the film does well, it does really well. And that, that's definitely one of the things it does really well is having – I forget who the guy is. I think he's wearing sort of a Hawaiian shirt and he's holding a guitar. And it seems like every time they're talking about – A technique on the guitar. He gives us a really good example.
1: I think he was their manager for some period.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I thought that was really great because a lot of documentaries wouldn't do that. I would have liked to have heard the Ventures. (laughs) I I think he said Wooly Bully that uh, Noki was playing underneath the bridge on the strings where you're not supposed to play and then there was like a brief clip where we heard that and we saw Noki's face playing live and I was like, yeah, I want more of that. But yeah, it did a really good job.
1: I guess I'm pretty interested to hear what you said, Mike, before about uh, someone now preparing documentary on surf music. So did you say that that was going to be like a TV series or a feature film? Because this is the sort of thing that warrants like a 10-part series to me.
2: I believe it's just a documentary I think i funded it on kickstarter and then it didn't make the funding and so they switched over to indiegogo and i moved over there i'll definitely include a link for that in the show notes
0: yeah i gave to that kickstarter and the uh indiegogo it's called sound of the surf and the uh filmmaker is thomas duncan and i can't wait to see it
2: those surf albums that they had that the ventures had they didn't last that Long. They had a few surf-specific albums, but then they would kind of use that surf sound, which kind of became their signature sound for other things. I am a huge fan of their Christmas album. That's probably one of the two Christmas albums that I will listen to readily every year. They would use that for, you know, some other songs as well. I, my favorite Ventures album is Ventures in Space, where there again it's a lot of covers of things, but then there's a couple original tunes in there, and it is just fantastic because it's like kind of spacey sounds, and then that Ventures twang to it. I, I, I love their song Penetration on that, especially. There's so many good things, and that's also where they did one version of the twilight zone.
1: Is that the album that has their version of Telstar? Uh, no, that's a different one, I think. That
2: is The Ventures Play Telstar and The Lonely Bull.
1: Because that, that was the one that had the, the the rocket on the front cover, I think, or something like that.
2: Yeah, the A was actually lifting off, I think.
1: Right. So that whole Joe Meek sound also comes into the surf sound, even though it's it's not. There you go. So once again, is surf about what the tune is called, or is it purely about the sound. I mean, I think you know, uh, you mentioned before about the uh, the Get Smart theme that they did, but I always sort of thought that the, the sound of the guitar in the TV version of the Get Smart theme always had that surf guitar sound, that very staccato up and down. And it's really I think that's a large part of the surf sound is staccato. It's you know, not just the reverb uh, the the wet reverb sound, I think they called it. Yeah, it's, it's very precise, very staccato, and it also has much to do with, say, maybe like having a very tight snare drum sound, which um, uh, I, I think that's in, instinctive to what it is. I just wanted to sort of take the conversation aside for a second to an argument that I often hear in, like, uh, music forums, and they talk about uh, the sound of... Uh, surf guitar versus the vocal surf sound So, you know, bands like the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean, they say, well, they're surf groups, but obviously they're a long way away from what you know, the Ventures and the Centurions and the likes doing. A lot of, at least from what I've read, a lot of people had problems with calling the Beach Boys a, a, a surf group because they were singing about the surfing life. And the sound that you get in an instrumental group, they're trying to emulate the sound of the surf. So they preferred that a whole lot. But that, I guess, raises a question. Could a band that didn't come from California, if if a band was playing in, I don't know, in uh, Michigan, was doing that sort of music, would they be a surf band? Do you have to surf? Do you have to be near the ocean to be able to do that sort of thing?
0: At some point, and I don't remember who said it, but they said it's time to distinguish between surf rock and beach rock. And they were putting the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean in the beach rock category. And then the other was there There were surf bands all over the country, whether they lived near the ocean or not. A lot of them may have had like surfy names and and for their songs and even for their bands. But then a lot of them, instead of writing songs about surfing, they wrote songs about hot rods. And it was almost the same basic music. Usually the the biggest difference was the amount of reverb on the twangy lead guitar, but still just as great as, as the surf records. I have like a stack of those records too.
2: That Hey Little Cobra song, I mean, that is totally sounds like a surf song, even though to your point, it's about a car. I mean, well, even
1: the Beach Boys were doing a ton of songs about cars as well. So it was either girls, cars, surf, girls, cars, surf, wash, rinse, repeat. Surf, if you take it and
2: just twist it a little bit, sometimes it comes up as like the rockabilly sound. It almost sounds like they took mm. rockabilly and just re-instrumentalized it and made it a little bit more electric and more effects heavy.
1: Nothing comes in isolation. I mean, I, you wouldn't necessarily call Link Ray surf music, but Rumble sounds like definitely a prototype for what the Ventures did or what other surf bands did. is he's applying some sort of effects there it's not all nice and clean but there's certainly the twang and that there's a it's a dirty sound but it still evokes an image of what the surf bands did and I, i'm sure that uh don wilson would have been a fan of that one as i guess a lot of guitarists would have been at that time just guess and morris you guys both were like uh yeah there's
2: a guy and i think it's his man their manager and the one complaint, the biggest complaint I had about the documentary was we don't see the names of people enough. Skiz, I think when you were making your Fred Lane documentary, I was like, hey, make sure you put people's names in the corner of the screen.
0: I honestly didn't realize that was Don Wilson in all those interviews. I I just thought, oh, you know, it's cool they got able to interview all these guys. And I was like, oh, it's that just one guy.
1: <laughs> I confess, first time I watched it. When they went first, like, from the close-up of Don's head, and then they went to showing him in what looked like a hotel room, I thought, oh, is is that Bob? I didn't realize it was the same guy, but there you go. I'm glad to know it's not just me.
2: I'm glad it wasn't just me either. While we were talking about the documentary um, offline, while we were talking on Facebook, I watched it, and the first time, I, I just was amazed by Josie Cotton. And normally, I don't just, like pick somebody out and pick on them. But what the fuck was up with Josie Cotton in this documentary? She's a gorgeous lady, but not with all that crazy makeup on. And then just, she has this like blank face on blank look on her face. And I'm just like, what is going on? What is up with this woman? Is she like a performance artist? What is happening here?
1: I'm sorry. You had to tell me, I mean, I do remember that one song or Joanne telling me about that one song from years ago, but until looking into research for this film I actually hadn't heard it I confess my bad
0: I would have liked to have heard the song that she did with the Ventures I mean she tells us that she did it but you know and I think there's footage of her playing with them but you know that's something I want to hear I as a Ventures fan I haven't heard that yet
3: I've got to be the Ventures biggest fan ever and to size it up really the Ventures music is fun it is the most fun
2: I wanted much more concert footage. I wanted much more of those promotional videos. Like we see part of the promotional video for Hawaii 50 and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is fantastic. Give me more of this stuff." So I was a little frustrated when it came to that. Also a little bit when it came to the pacing of things because we go from the two main guys meeting each other to them forming a band really quickly, and then really quickly we jump to the 64 version of Walk Don't Run. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, let's hear more about the original walk, don't run. Like we've got some good footage of that as well, which I really appreciated. But I wanted to know more of like how that song took off, how it played through the country was uh, to our earlier conversation. Was surf just popular on the coast uh, on uh, in California or what was going on with with this stuff? I wanted to know more of the journey of the ventures. Being able to produce, I mean, these guys, when they were, you know, at the top of their game, were doing like three, four albums a year. So, how were they able to do that? How were they able to get to those heights?
1: I remember it was maybe about two, three years ago where on See Here we discussed a documentary about Harry Nelson.
0: Who is Harry Nelson and why is everyone talking about him? I just watched that.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's the one. And I think I made a similar complaint at the time thinking, yeah, there's some great stuff in here, but gee, there's a lot left out. Gee, I want more. And that was a big complaint of me at the time. I think for this one, yeah, whilst I can see what you're saying, but I tend now, maybe I've changed my perspective on how I watch some of these films with 90 Minutes. I think it sort of serves as a primer. It's more like, hey, watch this, see what's really cool, take the things that you want, and then maybe find a really great book or look up the film clips on YouTube. And you, you could argue, well, that's not the role of a film. But, know uh, I sometimes like to think that you know, a film should say, well, if you don't know who the ventures are, we've – only heard their name in passing. Well, let this interest you. Now run, don't walk. See what I did there? To your nearest record shop or buy a DVD full of film clips or you know, whatever. And that's what I think I see the role of this film. I mean, ultimately I just saw Don Wilson as this really amicable, lovely guy who who feels blessed that he's had this great career and uh, I mean, I know we're gonna get to talking about their time in Japan as well. I think he feels grateful for everything that has gone right in his life. He's been able to play music all his life. He's been able to record whatever hundreds of albums, at least, which means that with your foot high stack skis, you probably have about ten percent of what they put out. I'm not really feeling like I can hang it too much on this film. I, I, I just love. I think their aim was to say. Here, this is for you. In case you don't know, you're a child of the 21st century and you want to know what is cool about this music, let us show you right now that you've seen it go out. And I see it as a primer and I love it for that. I'm really, I really enjoyed it.
2: They have been around for over 50 years. So trying to fit all that history into one documentary is going to be nearly impossible. There were times though where I was like, why is this person on screen? I don't necessarily know what they're bringing to the party. I agree with you that this is a really good primer as far as like, here's these guys. If you've never heard of them, you need to check these guys out. I think being a Ventures fan, I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all this stuff. Come on, let, let's get going. Let's get to the meat of this stuff.
0: It definitely filled in some holes that, you know, as a Ventures fan, I, I realized that I didn't know that much about them. I I knew what, they put a lot of records out and they were so successful. And these are the names of the guys on the records, but I actually didn't know the mother who was the manager. I, there were a lot of things in the story that I didn't know before watching the doc. So I'm, a, you know, I know it sounds like we're ragging on this documentary, but it did teach me, you know, a Ventures fan. It taught me things I didn't already know about this band that I've worshipped for uh, 40 some years now.
1: I wonder if they were an innovator in another way because if uh, you walked into an, an instrument store, you'd see countless VHS tapes of instructional tuition from your favorite guitar players. But back in the 60s, the ventures were doing that with chord charts and records. So you'd go out and buy a record having them teaching you how to play tequila or how to play walk, don't run. And I found some of this instructional recordings on youtube i was listening to it and it's now you will play the a chord and the c chord in this formation and it was a bit funny to listen to in that regard but i just sort of appreciate that whether any other musicians were doing that sort of thing at the time i mean i know that instructional records for how to grow plants and and the like were were a thing but i don't know how many other musicians were recording how to play their own hits I just found that fascinating and I'm just sort of wondering whether the musicians who came later on I mean I know Al Demiola was definitely a fan of the ventures and I'm pretty sure he's gone out and done an instructional video and I I actually also during the 80s if you bought magazines like Guitar Player or Modern Drummer they'd often come with those plastic records and uh, it would have someone like well yeah like Al Demiola I had one of those plastic records, and he's saying, "Right, I'm going to teach you how to uh, play. Not necessarily chin, I'm going to teach you this technique. So here's how to do an arpeggio. I'm going to do it slow, medium, and fast. okay. Now here's a medium bit. Here's a fast bit. Did you catch it? <laughs> And it, it was just insane. I mean, obviously, there was no way I was ever going to pick up on that. I mean, I'm, I'm a shit guitarist to begin with, but I just sort of wonder who was that aimed at. But anyway, so I've I digressed, but I, I like to think that the Ventures were pioneers in the whole instructional record and instructional video phase.
0: Now that you've reminded me of those records, I, I realize that I, I have some of those instructional records, but I don't think I've ever played them.
2: I have one, and I definitely have played it, and that's why one of the few songs I can pick out on a guitar is Walk, Don't Run. So I'm not very good with the guitar, but I can definitely play the... And that's about it.
1: Diagram one. Two.
2: definitely not trying to sound like i'm picking on this the lack of names and the weird josie cotton part notwithstanding i did enjoy this and like you said it's a great primer especially for somebody you know who who isn't that familiar with it but then hearing kids say yeah there's things i in here i didn't know and i'm like okay yeah exactly like there's no book on the ventures there may be maybe there was a fanzine back in the day but there's like there's not a lot of places where you go for Ventures info. I mean, other than the fan club, I was a fan club member way back in the day. Uh, I haven't gotten in many newsletters lately, but I wanted to know more about these guys because listening to them on, on album. You don't get their voices very much, if at all, and you just see the pictures of them on the album covers. And I was glad that they even spent time talking about the album covers because the album covers were fantastic. And they were what the box sells the cereal, right? And these album covers were so amazing sometimes that it was just like, yes, I have to have this. I don't even care what this album sounds like. I need to own this record.
0: Here's a story that I I've heard as rumor, I don't know whether it's true, but if it is true, it would have been nice to have had it in the film is that on some of those album covers, that's not even them in the picture. You know, I don't know if that's true. That's just a rumor that I've heard for years. Uh, And then the other one is that they uh, were married to some of the models that are on the covers. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. It'd
1: be nice if they got in contact with any of the surviving models and got them to, Redo their picture all those years later because they did that with the lady who's on the front cover of that Herb Alpert whipped cream album many years later. Yeah. And they redosed her in the whipped cream. So it would, I would have actually liked to have seen more you know, someone from the album covers talking about. I mean, I know that in one case they did with uh, Pleasant Gaiman, who is um, also part of the Pantheon network that my podcasts are on a uh, show called the devil's music. I'm glad that they did even mention the album covers to some extent, but that could be a whole thing unto itself.
0: You mentioned Herb Albert. Cause around the time, the first time I watched the ventures documentary, which I've now watched it twice, but the first time was in the middle of like a couple of weeks stretch where I watched the Nielsen documentary, the Zappa documentary, the Herb Albert documentary, uh, The Dolly Parton documentary.
1: There's a new one. Wow.
0: A a work in progress of the new Alex Chilton documentary. <laughs> so, you know, you were saying Herb Albert, and it reminded me, I think it was in that documentary where they said that that's not actually whipped cream on the album cover. It's shaving cream. It was an uplifting documentary. and And, you know, the Ventures film also. I mean, Don Wilson seems like just the nicest guy in the world throughout the entire film. So, yeah, I love seeing stuff like that.
2: Yeah. I really also appreciated the archival interviews with some of the folks that weren't around anymore. I've always been fascinated by, is it uh Mel Taylor? He's got such an interesting look. And that was one of the things like you were talking about, Hey, it might not even be these guys on the record cover. Mel Taylor's the dead giveaway because the rest of the guys, no offense to anybody, but like, you know, pretty much like generic white guys, Mel Taylor, Totally different look to this guy, and I love seeing him show up on the album covers. And especially because he, he stuck out like a sore thumb so often. He had this, like, uh, he kind of reminded me of the gangster who ends up in the meat locker in Goodfellas. He's got, like, that kind of look to him. So, like, him, along with, like, these clean-cut, blonde, blue-eyed guys, and just like, okay, yeah, Mel really sticks out here, but he's fantastic. He's a fantastic drummer. And that was great, too, seeing that footage of him playing
0: Wipeout. Noki stands out also, I think.
1: I want to talk a little bit about Japan. That section of the film just sort of blew me away. I mean, there was all all the Japanese fans and the the Japanese musicians who they speak to and they're talking, I'd never even heard of this before, uh, Anchor music. The Japanese fans were saying, right, well, there was something in the Ventures music that we could relate to from Anchor. And I can't remember, they don't mention the instrument by name, but there's this, traditional I think it's a four-stringed instrument that is traditional in Japan and it's very percussive. I mean you you hear and it you listen to that, it's acoustic, but you can sort of almost relate that, at least the way how it's played, to surf guitar. So the fact that the the Japanese fans cottoned onto them musically at first is no surprise to me, given that traditional connection. But the fact that the band were also very, very loyal to their fans, and they kept going there and did thousands of performances and started playing with local musicians and incorporating some traditional Japanese sounds into their own music, and they'd record albums specifically for that market. And I just found that fascinating. I'd never heard anything before of a band developing such a relationship with an audience in a country or a market that wasn't their own.
2: I mean, that's why the Susie Quattro documentary is made by two
1: Australian guys, right? I have seen an artist who is loyal to her fans in another market. There you go. I'm talking shit. I don't know.
2: I knew that they were big in Japan. I don't know how I knew that they were big in Japan. I want to say maybe... Years ago, when I was looking for VHS tapes of them, I might have seen that there were some that were put out in Japan or saw some Japanese labels on some of the Ventures albums, like going into Tower Records or something. Yeah, somehow I knew that. So I wasn't completely shocked when it was like, oh, yeah, we're big in Japan. But to know the extent of how big they were. And I was really glad, to your point, that they had these interviews with japanese people who were influenced by the ventures and the one woman with her guitar and stuff i was waiting for her to like you know pick out a lot more stuff but yeah it was really nice to to see that and just see the reach of this band
0: i always felt like the uh the ventures lore was that they were bigger in japan than anywhere else you know and they were big here but they were apparently even bigger there i mean there's a live in japan album
2: There's Ventures in Tokyo, 68, and Pops in Japan.
0: Yeah, and then I thought that there were also movies, of it, or at least a movie of them live in Japan that uh, I feel like I've heard about but I've never seen.
2: And a lot of that stuff that was released on VHS is so hard to find unless it's been put out in other mediums. I mean, for years there was a uh, uh, live in Japan of Public Image Limited that I – Like, I saw it once. I couldn't keep the videotape because it was like borrowed from somebody and I didn't have two VCRs. That was like how old this was. And, uh, it took me years and years to be able to track it down again. And yeah, I keep thinking that maybe I saw some sort of ventures VHS thing but I didn't own it. And if it was from Japan, it would have been buku expensive because vide- videotapes over there and DVDs still are like prohibitively expensive, at least in in my uh, price range.
1: They didn't mention this in the film, but do either of you know whether the ventures ever did anything like go into a, a, an Annette Funicello beach movie or something similar? Because that that was a thing, right? Where bands would play or mime their instruments to their big hiff in the background in some surf films in the early sixties. Did they ever do that?
0: I want to say they did, but I can't actually think of an example of that.
1: It just seems to me that if they were as huge as they were at the time of walk, don't run that some enterprising Hollywood producer mogul would say, would Hey, we hear that the kids are listening to this, put them in a movie that the kids will be watching. Uh, but the documentary never actually says whether that was the case or not. But I just like to think that that would have been something they would have done or maybe being maybe because they were 25, they were too old.
0: Yeah. I was going to say their age and, you know, I always thought, you know, looking at the pictures on the cover that maybe they were sort of square compared to like the, the hip bands of the time. And then also they were a little older than the hip bands of the time. And I could see Hollywood producers not wanting to use them for that reason. But, you know, Bill Haley, you know, <laughs> right. He was older and kind of square looking and, and, you know, they
1: put him in move in rock and roll movies.
2: When you brought that up, my mind immediately went to the wonders in uh Tom Hanks movie. <laughs> Captain
1: Geach and the shrimp shack shooters. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I've watched that film so many times. That's pretty impressive. I have to tell you. All right.
2: We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of the film, Stacey Lane Wilson, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com.
1: Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis... I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell
2: you? No pizza for you, Joey.
1: Not to mention this one.
2: Grease is the best, man.
1: (laughs) What makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, The Gigi Allen Story, Ishtar and Yellow Submarine. As well as Roundtable Film Talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music, and you love films, join us at C. Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mugumbo. And I am a
0: potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the traumatic cinematic show.
2: What is the difference, you ask?
0: The Dramatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers,
2: check out TraumaticCinematic.com,
0: because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on traumatic I'm on the internet!
2: I want to know more about you, and I want to know how you got into filmmaking and when you started The Ventures Project.
3: My first film came out in 2011. That was a short film, actually inspired by the music of Bob Dylan. So I always try to mix my love of music into my storytelling, whether it's books or films, and now a documentary about The Ventures. So I've been making narratives and sort of arty films for years. At The Venture Stars on Guitars is my first foray into the documentary world. And my brother, Tim Wilson, who actually has a Wilson Brothers guitar company and is really into music, he came up with the idea initially because a lot of people had kind of approached my dad over the years saying they wanted to make a documentary, but they never did. You know, there's a film kind of deals always fall through. But when it's your family (laughs) making the movie, they can't wriggle out of their promises. So I guess that's, you know, how I just really stuck with it. It certainly wasn't easy making a documentary, especially independently producing it and financing it is the most difficult thing I've ever done. But it feels really good to get it out there finally. And the reception has been exactly as I had hoped people seem to be entertained and educated, and that's really what I was after as I was putting it together.
2: When did you say there needs to be this documentary and I'm going to be the one to direct it?
3: That was about four years ago. We tried to kind of partner up with um, another production company that had put out some documentaries, but you know, they were kind of relying on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And, you know, that was, we had mixed results with that, not great results. So they kind of dropped out of the picture. And after that happened, I still felt responsible for it. Because, you know, my brother and my sister, Jill, she's also a producer, you know, we had all said, we're going to do this. And I, for one, certainly never go back on my word. So I just kept forging ahead. And it was, you know, like I said, at times it could be pretty difficult and a thankless job. But now that I've finally got the point where it's out, you know, plus the pandemic really put a huge wrench in our plans because we had a whole worldwide film festival tour planned. And I was really looking forward to traveling all over the nation and the world with the movie and meeting fans. And, you know, that didn't happen. So we had to go to plan B, which is to find a distributor sooner than we'd planned. But it's all worked out fine.
2: What were some of the more difficult aspects of making the stock?
3: Probably coordinating so many different people. It's not like we had a production studio where we could have people come into the studio and A lot of times musicians were on tour and they couldn't get back for weeks or months and kind of just chasing people down much as they love the ventures and they really wanted to do it. It's not like you're paying these people to be in the documentary there being interviewed out of their love for the ventures, but they have their own priorities in their lives. So oftentimes I would have to go to them. I certainly, you know, did do some traveling to Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, which is where the ventures are from, and then all over Southern California. It was a lot of work, definitely a lot of work. And I shot a lot of the documentary myself. You know, it's just such a mixed bag of how when you're doing interviews over the course of three years in many different locations, you have different equipment and different circumstances. So it was putting it together is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. But I think it's fun. I think the result looks good.
2: How did you come up with that right balance of the timeline versus the influence?
3: Well, as I was conducting all these interviews and basically doing a lot of research on the ventures because even though my dad is a co-founder of the band i was not an expert on the ventures before i started this endeavor so one of the things that just kept coming up time and time and time and time again was the incredible amount of musical influence that they have across several different genres everything from country to thrash metal which is just really mind-blowing when you think about it um So at first, when I started making the documentary, I was just grabbing interviews and gathering footage, but I didn't really have um, a game plan yet. Maybe about almost a year into the shooting, I really kind of sat down and thought, okay, I have to come up with a three act structure and um, wanted to really focus on the rise of the electric guitar and how the ventures tidal wave of fame coincided with that and then to go into the influence and their innovations in the studio.
2: Tell me about some of the archive footage that you have, because some of that is just remarkable. Where did that come from?
3: Some of that is from a Japanese film called Beloved Invaders that was put out in 1966, and those rights uh, reverted back to my dad and the ventures a few years back. So I was able to cut from that, which is where you see a lot of that uh, black and white footage of the Ventures on tour in the late 60s. And it's just, you know, the mobs of fans and them on stage. And then I also gathered a lot of video from fans of the Ventures. They have an incredible fan base that have, you know, shot their own video over the years. And a lot of them were kind enough to give me that footage to use.
2: There's one shot of um, something to do with spies, and and it was a photo of a woman. And I was like, I got that when I signed up for the Ventures Fan Club like 20 years ago.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. So that was, yeah, surfing and spying. Yeah, we found the uh, cover model for that. And her name is Pleasant Gaiman, and she is still living in Hollywood. And she was a big part of the punk rock and surf scene of the late 70s and early 80s, and she was the cover model. So it was really great to have her in the documentary as well.
2: That was fantastic. And just to see all those old uh, album covers was just really such a trip down memory road.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that a lot of people brought up, too, was how much they loved Ventures' album covers because they're just so fun. They really do evoke a nostalgic feel to them.
2: Having your dad there, of course, is a invaluable resource, but did he collect stuff? Did he have his own archive of ventures things?
3: Yeah, luckily I was able to film a lot of those things as well. Um, we have a section in the movie where he's reading some letters from fans and he kept all those things over the years. It really means a lot to him that the fans take time to write letters and send artwork. You know, there's a lot of fan artwork of the ventures. Um, you know, plus, of course, he has all his, old records and his photos and old tour books and things like that. So I was able to have access to those archives and scan and film those to put into the movie as well.
2: Who were some of the folks that you wanted to interview but you weren't able to get?
3: I really wanted to get the Go-Go's because the song that I just mentioned, "Surfin' and Spying, was written by the Go-Go's in homage to the Ventures. But you know, it just didn't come together. And sometimes people have managers <laughs> that do not give them the messages. For instance, uh Peter Frampton who actually performed with the ventures in the early eighties and is a huge fan. I had written to his management a few times and never heard back. So sometimes they just stonewall, you know, and maybe the client really would like to be included in the documentary and they just never got the message. So that does happen.
2: What were some of the more surprising things that you found as you were putting this together?
3: One of the things that I learned that I thought was very interesting was that the Ventures song, 2000 Pound Bee, which features a fuzzy guitar, the fuzz tone, was one of the actually first recordings of the electric guitar with a fuzz box used, and that was in 63 or 6 I think 63, I believe, although Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones with Satisfaction gets the credit for that for the 1964 hit, which everyone knows, but actually the ventures did it first.
2: I had no idea about John Belushi being such a fan.
3: That was very interesting, too. That's something that I've always known because I was around when John Belushi passed away, so I remember my dad telling me that story. And it's such an interesting tale. And the fact that there's also a Belushi documentary that's just come out, um, I believe it's on HBO, and they played 2,000 Pound B on the closing credits. So it's really nice that it's still part of pop culture in that regard.
2: How are you balancing making this documentary for the last few years and then also being a producer and a director on so many films?
3: not easy. I guess I'm a workaholic. I don't know. I feel bad if I'm not doing something constantly. So I always make work for myself, but it's definitely taken up a a lot of time, for sure. It's something that is unlike a narrative film, where with a narrative film, you have the script, you have the actors, you have a finite vision When you know for the end, and with the documentary, it's very free flowing, and you have so many different pieces to put together. We have about 40 different interviewees in the documentary alone, so it was definitely a lot of threads to weave together. But I couldn't have done it without my editor, Nina Hurton, who just did such an amazing job with the editing of. I don't know how many hours worth of footage, hours and hours and hours, to narrow it down to an hour and a half. Plus, she did the animation that you see in the film, because we have uh, animations to illustrate some of the stories where there was no footage to go with it. So much fun. It has that very, like, 60s Archie's kind of feel to it, and uh, it was just perfect.
2: It must have been interesting to work with your own brother as one of the producers on there.
3: Yeah, he definitely, uh, well, like I said, he had the idea initially, and then he was able to connect me with a lot of musicians that he knew liked The Ventures. Um, Because of his company, Wilson Brothers Guitars, he was already in contact with quite a few musicians who are influenced by The Ventures, so he was able to um, bridge the gap there where I didn't have to go through managers. And the same with my sister, too. I mean, they're both born and raised in Tacoma and live in Seattle area, so they know a lot of people out there. And that's where the ventures come from. They're the first Pacific Northwest musicians to really kind of start that wave along with Jimi Hendrix and Hart and eventually Nirvana.
2: As I watch the documentary and hearing that they're from Seattle, I was like, oh, that makes total sense because I can hear some of that sound in grunge.
3: They are definitely known for being a surf rock band, but that's really not all they do. And they have so much more to show, which I think is kind of exciting about having the documentary come out to the world at large and can really see all that the ventures do.
2: I was really glad, too, that you covered just how long they've been around and that they didn't stop after the 60s, that they've kept going and still go today.
3: Yeah, my dad retired in 2015 from touring at, I think he was 83 or 84 years old. There's another incarnation of the ventures that still goes on. The drummer, Mel Taylor's son, Leon, has been with the band since the 90s. And Bob Spaulding has been, you know, in and out of the band, I think since the 80s, maybe even the late 70s. So he's still with the band. So they do go on. And it's not just guns for hire. It's actually people that have provenance with the ventures.
2: I was also very happy to see that you got into the the Japanese stuff, because I knew that they were huge in Japan. And I was so happy to see when you covered that and just how big they were. I had no idea.
3: It's really impressive. And I I think a lot of that, or maybe even all of it, can be attributed to the fact that they We're an instrumental and are an instrumental group where, you know, we do have some Japanese interviewees in the film who talk about how it's just the feeling that they evoked of Americana and surf and the beach and the waves and the Japanese people just really got attached to that and they never let go. Even to this day, when I went on tour with the Ventures in 2015 on my dad's final tour, along with uh, my brother and my sister, we saw Fans of all different ages, really elderly fans, you know, uh, in the audience, young fans. So it was really great to see that multi-generational love for the ventures that never seems to go away in Japan.
2: When did you kind of realize, hey, my dad is a rock star?
3: I guess I always knew it's kind of something where you just grow up with it. I guess, you know, when I was a teenager, definitely, I, I... Got more into music then, but I was always super into British rock. You know, I love uh, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and the Who and groups like that. But definitely in the course of making the film, it helped me appreciate the ventures even more to know that the bands that I love may never have been exactly what they were if it weren't for them listening to the ventures when they were coming up.
2: I know you said your brother's a musician. Did you pick up an instrument as well?
3: Uh, no, I didn't actually. I, I did take one guitar lesson. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is really difficult and complicated. I can't. Do this. So, I'm just an appreciator.
2: I am very sorry that you weren't able to go out and show this at film festivals and get that kind of recognition around the country. Is it now available on DVD? What's the next step with this movie?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, that would have been great. It did show at um, one film festival in January, the real uh, Hollywood independent film festival right before the pandemic hit. And it won Best Documentary. So that's very exciting. Um, and then, yeah, it played at a couple of virtual festivals but that's not the same not when you it is nice to see it with the crowd and to see it with people so it is coming out on december the 8th and it is going to be on uh, dvd uh, mainly online through amazon and target and walmart and best buy as far as streaming goes it is available for pre-order on itunes and then At the the 8th or after the 8th, um, it's going to be pretty much everywhere that you can rent or buy streaming media.
2: Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for inviting me to, to watch the movie and talk about it. This is really, really great.
3: Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that it's all finally come together.
2: We are back, and we are talking about The Venture Stars on Guitars, and I know that surf music these days, you don't hear a whole lot of it, but for a little while there, Morris, you mentioned 1994, I think, yeah, the surf music just came back with a vengeance with Pulp Fiction, and... Kind of, uh, I know that uh, Tarantino was saying that surf music also reminded him of spaghetti western soundtracks. And I can also hear that with that major twang and reverb that you get on something like Fistful of Dollars is right there with some of the work that some of these surf bands are doing. <laughs>
1: After I watched it for the second time, and I saw, you know, they were speaking to um, uh, uh, to the fantastic Lalo Schifrin, which I thought, my God, what reach this band have? But I thought, well, surely they would there'd be uh, some connection. Ennio Morricone would have been a fan of The Ventures, and then of course I see that The Ventures did do a cover of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly theme. But that twangy guitar—it had to have influenced a whole range of people who we don't necessarily normally think. It would have, but, you know, uh, The the Ventures also did uh, the Mission Impossible theme, so everything's feeding back on each other. And I I guess, like, a a few years ago, we we were talking about the documentary about library music. I was sort of thinking, wow, you know, this is great and unique, and the director of that film told me, he said, well, you know, those musicians in the library music field were just feeding on what was going on in the commercial field, the, the regular bands world if you will. So we say there's nothing unique. Everything feeds off everything else, but it's what you do with it. So I did love the fact that, you know, Lalo Schifrin was in this and that we could trace back to Ennio Morricone as well. And you, you were talking earlier on in the show about the Get Smart theme, and I'm sure that Irving Zathmery or whatever his name was, would have been listening to bands like The Venturers when recording the uh, the theme for that film. Oh, for that TV show.
0: I kind of wonder how much of it was Venture's influence and how much of it was Dick Dale or Dwayne Eddy. You know, two two other people that had similar sounds. And, you know, I don't really know the history of all three of them and compared to each other. Were they at the same time? Were they who was first? Whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of Dwayne Eddy in like the spaghetti Western
1: I think that's probably another problem with the nature of a documentary like this. So this is not a problem with this specific film, but the nature If you're going to do a documentary about the ventures and you're going to fit it into 90 minutes. or you're going to do a documentary about the Beatles or the stones or whoever you're looking at one band in isolation. Whereas we know that that's not the truth, you know, in every band is listening to every other band. So, you know what you say about Dwayne Eddy is a great point to be made by saying, well, we've only got 90 minutes, we can't look at that as well. Uh, that's why I think something like this really needs a 100-hour documentary, everything to be uh, connected to each other and, you know, where you have enough time to do it. But.
0: And maybe even drawing attention to the, uh, the competition or the contemporaries sort of takes away the importance of the subject matter.
2: Just for, uh, for clarification, I went back and looked and it looks like the Ventures have albums that were recorded live in Japan, at least 10 of them. And that just also goes to show the breadth of their recording. You know, it said that they've been together for over 50 years. That foot of music that Skiz has in his house right now, you're going to be collecting for a lot of years before you even begin to get like to the halfway point, I think.
0: And, of course, now that this documentary's out, those records are going to be more pricier than <laughs> I'm used to.
2: Maybe the Ventures won't take America by storm because of the doc. But you never know. It might hit. People might be like, hey, we need something nice and, and happy and jaunty. And we want to go back to the old days of when we could go outside and surf. So let's uh, listen to or watch the Ventures documentary.
1: I wanted to sort of take the conversation a little bit away from the traditional sound of surf music. Now, Mike, I went and sent you some music from an anthology that was put together here about four or five years ago called A Life in the Sun and talk about very being very specific. This is an anthology of music from Australian surf films, so not merely australian surf music but music that was in films about surf now i don't know how big surf films were in america in the 70s or the 80s but it seemed to me like while i was growing up i'd be looking in the newspaper and every summer there was always a bunch of surf films showing in some small cinema somewhere and the biggest one of them all was a a film called Morning of the Earth, which came out in the early 1970s. I didn't get to see it until about three, four years ago on DVD, which is not the way to see it. But I imagine that a lot of these surf films would have been very, very similar. It's like what I call surf porn. Um, you see a couple of guys riding the waves and it's absolutely gorgeous. The The color of the ocean is just crackling. It's just beautiful to look at. And uh, then you know, it fades to black. You see the guys on the beach – They're talking, they're waxing their boards, and that's not a euphemism. Uh, And then a minute or two later, they're back out riding the waves, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. It's beautiful, beautiful to look at. But why I'm sort of bringing up specifically about these films is, once again, it's coming down to the music. As I said, the Morning of the Earth soundtrack was one of the biggest albums in Australia of the era. I love this compilation that I sent your way, A Life in the Sun, because like – anything else it shows an evolution in the surf sound in australia in the early 60s uh, we had a band called the atlantics which were they lasted in one version or another for many years and their biggest hit was a tune called bombora uh, and that sounds like the traditional californian guitar instrumental surf sound that we know the beauty of a life in the sun is it showed that there was music that was not traditionally like that but it worked perfectly if you were to be watching one of these surfing films and as i said the one that i've watched morning of the earth you get uh guys like uh, uh g wayne thomas uh this other guy brian cadd who was very very big singer songwriter in the in the 70s and uh, a band i really really love called tam and shud and their music it's nothing at all like The traditional surf sound that we've been talking about throughout the rest of the show, it's very different. I mean, like Morning of the Earth has a choir in it. Almost sounds like it should belong in a cathedral. It's very ethereal, almost orchestral. And yet, when you're watching these guys surf in the movie, it absolutely works perfectly. I don't know, like outside of these films, how much surf music had evolved or what was defined as surf music. So stuff that was not soundtrack for surfing films. But I just loved being able to listen to this and make this contrast. And even if I hadn't seen the films that they were soundtracking on this "A Life in the Sun compilation, I was listening to it and I could imagine something and I thought, yes, that completely works. Another film, I sort of just want to quickly sort of point out uh, at the end of that. there's a film called Highway One, an Australian film from 1977, which I, now I really, really want to see. But the soundtrack of that was done by um, a guy called Richard Clapton, uh, who's like one of the big singer-songwriters for for the last 40, 50 years uh, in Australia. And like he had these songs, uh, this song Capricorn Dancer, which I didn't realise was part of this film. And there's another song called uh, Blue Bay Blues, and you listen to that and you just imagine the ocean. So there's, there are other musical ways to imagine the ocean besides the traditional surf or for that matter, the the beach rock that you were referring to earlier on skis. Um, I just love that the, the view of the ocean can bring different things to um, musicians or songwriters imaginations.
0: It's funny. Now that you mentioned that I was thinking of all the surf movies I've seen and Hardly any of them. The sound had soundtracks that were made up of like the traditional twangy reverb surf music that we think of, the Surfaris, Dick Dale stuff. And probably the I don't want to say the best known, but uh the earliest one I know of, or maybe it's just a real important one, would be uh Bruce Brown's Endless Summer, which that soundtrack album, that's like one of the few ones where I actually know that there's a soundtrack album because I have it and it seems like every surf music fan I know tends to have that record and it doesn't really sound like the surf rock that we think of when we think of surf rock. It's just instrumental and, you know, yes, there is some twangy guitar and there's some reverb, but it's not, it's not Dick Dale, you know, it's not the Crossfires or, or any of those
1: great record. Well, maybe they deliberately avoid that because they don't want to, seem right well this would be a cliche yeah you all know this you all expect it and then it becomes a pastiche of itself so i think it's great that these film directors and composers decided to go into a different direction to say well this is how we show respect that music's great time to move on Um, which is just like it is in the regular music world anyway
0: that band that does in the summer is the sandals and i actually have a couple other uh albums by them and one of them is a soundtrack to a ski movie. You know, the ski movies and the surf movies were very similar. But I don't remember liking the music from the ski movie nearly as much as I like the music from the surf movie.
2: It's funny how those would then kind of morph over the years into skateboarding videos. And when I was coming up, that was like the thing, you know, the search for Animal Chin or, you know, whatever Stussy was putting out where it's just like – Bunch of guys. I mean, I even had a friend who made a skate video and it was like, we're going to show people skating for a while and then we're going to do a goofy skit and then we'll go back into skating. And yeah, that that was one of those where I don't know if anybody who wasn't in our circle of friends would appreciate it, but I've watched uh, the posse video probably a hundred times. And also with those skateboarding videos, that was where you get the soundtracks with those. So it was funny that you know there's skating music, you know, music associated with skateboarding videos, just as there is music associated with you know surfing and and uh, with skiing. Now I, I forgot about the wave of ski movies that were out there, and then even the revival of the ski movement in the early '90s with like Ski School and um, uh, what was it? That was way after Hot Dog the movie. But there was another ski movie right around that same time. I was fascinated to look at how music might attach itself to a sport.
1: Yeah, look, there was um, a film which I hadn't had a chance to see for many, many years, and when I finally did, I regretted it, but um, I got in the mid-70s a soundtrack by uh, the yes keyboard player Rick Wakeman, uh, for a film called White Rock. And that was like his soundtrack for this film about the Innsbruck Winter Olympics from, I think it was it 1976, um, or, uh, or somewhere around that period anyway. And I have always loved how Rick Wakeman goes and takes his approach, he just imagines in his head. I mean, when he did The Six Wives of Henry VIII, he said, well, this music might not mean anything to you if you're a history buff or about Henry VIII, but it's what it presents to me. And listening to White Rock, that became my musical association with winter sports, with skiing, with the luge. And I've never done any of that in my life, but I imagine if I were to watch a ski film, that that's the music that would be in my head. And it's just you can train yourself into anything, but it just that music just seemed to work for me so well. The film is terrible, but um but the music is fantastic. I think I think we're we're like uh whatever it is, forty plus years away down the track that I don't think I'll piss off any film director this time, Mike.
2: <laughs> now to find the director of that that ski movie. <laughs>
1: I'd die laughing if you did.
0: While we're talking about ski movies, I I forget the name of the filmmaker, but uh there's a new documentary about the guy that sort of started the ski movie craze. It showed it uh I project I was the projectionist when it screened at, at Slamdance back in January. I think that was this year, maybe it was last year. But it was fascinating. It, it and I remember I was watching it thinking, well this is just the ski version of Endless Summer that this guy was making. And then I looked it up and I was like, "Oh, but this guy came for like the ski movies came first before the surf movies."
2: I never would have thought that. I don't know why, but I always would have thought that the surfing came first and then the skiing.
1: Coming back to the overall influence of the ventures and seeing how many people cited them as an influence. I mean, we see uh, Billy Bob Thornton at the beginning of the film saying how much of a fan he was. And then he actually showed as well, you know, I recorded an album with these guys and I just... Wow, I loved hearing that. But when they sort of made the connection between how many other musicians said, Yep, your music was an influence on us. And, you know, Don said, Well, I can't even say how I see it, but I appreciate it. And uh, hearing how the band had played at CBGB's and there was pogoing going on to the ventures, it it made me smile. I couldn't imagine it, but there you go. You know, they're appreciated by the generations. And um, seeing Marky Ramone saying how much of an influence they were on the Ramones. And I can sort of see that. Uh, the B-52s, yeah, definitely. You know, that staccato guitar made sense. Anthrax, whoa, that just amazed me. But, you know, kudos to them. Look, I love seeing that. I, I mean, I would like to have heard maybe, but of course, you know, the, the rights would have been shockingly expensive, but I would have liked to have heard, Maybe a couple of examples. Well, here's a tune that where we're taking uh, the Ventures' influence and you know showing it. Oh yeah, I can see that. But um, but yeah, I, I, look, I really loved how there was a lot of respect and saying, yeah, this did this for our band rather than just the average you know, uh, music listener saying, yeah, I really love them. I love to see musicians give credit as to uh, what excited them.
0: That's funny. You mentioned like when they, they were touring, they played CBGB and they played the, uh, the Mud Club and the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. They also played the Marble Bar in Baltimore. I was underage and didn't try to sneak in, and I've regretted it for decades now. And people here in Baltimore still talk about that show. If they've come through on tour more than twice since then, I must not have known about it. I feel like they came through once, and you know, and this is since like the early '80s. So if they're still touring, I I don't know. They don't seem to come near me anywhere. I, the time I saw them, it was in D.C., and they were playing with the uh, it was like the the Army Band. They'd actually written some song called "Be Strong, America," and they they played it with the Army Band backing them. But I've never been able to catch them do an actual like regular Ventures concert. So. If they're still touring, and I realize it's like a different lineup now, but I wish they would come my way.
2: I got to imagine they're doing a lot of gigs in California.
1: Although that film did indicate that at least in their American heyday, they were going all over the country. So yeah, it'd be easy for them to just stay in California and do what they do. But hopefully they're, well, I don't even know if they've ever come out here. And you know, we're a surfing nation. Come on, come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come out here. We'll host you. The whole Ring of Fire. Any
2: any any country on the Ring of Fire, I think, is uh, a fair game, right? They can, pl- they can play my back, yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts, Skiz and Morris. Skiz, what has been happening in your world, sir?
0: Oh, let's see. When I have the time to work on my projects, I've been working on Sound Mechanic, which is my latest feature documentary about Neil Feather, who's an artist that uh, invents new instruments out of found mechanical objects. And he uh, recently just moved to New Zealand. So I'm done shooting. And hopefully uh, I'll have a rough cut, a first rough cut real soon.
1: You're going to go to New Zealand?
0: I was actually supposed to go to New Zealand with him earlier this year. And that's, you know, one of the many things that got canceled uh because of COVID. But he finally was able to get permission to leave our country and enter their country and then... He's there now, and I'm here. <laughs> so, I don't know if I can get the permission to go for a visit, but I, you know he got the permission to sort of relocate.
2: I can always do it via Skype. I'm sure the video quality is just fine. Skiz, <laughs> <laughs> if people wanted to hear Garage Sale, your garage rock slash surf band, where would they go to uh, pick up a CD or MP3?
0: Oh, that's a good question. You can find links to all things Garage Sale at beefplatter.com. There is a CD, and there's a lot of compilation tracks, and there's a new record in the works.
1: And,
2: Morris, what's happening with you?
1: So, got the, the next couple of weeks recording an episode of See Here and an episode of Love That Album. Uh, the episode of See Here with that we're doing next week, and we're speaking to another Wilson. Lots of Wilsons. There's We didn't even make the connection between Brian and, and Don, uh, two surfing Wilsons, Um or not, but next week we're speaking to a fellow called Brent Wilson. He's just released a documentary this year called Streetlight Harmonies, and it's about the history of doo-wop music. And I've long been a fan of doo-wop music, and uh, I sang in an a cappella group for many, many years. So that's a subject that's very close to my heart. So we'll be talking with him next week about that film. And I love that album. In a couple of weeks we'll be recording an episode – Speaking with a fellow called Scott Thurling. Scott runs a label here called Pop Boomerang. It's been the label's been around for I don't know, a good twenty years, twenty plus years or so. And just out of a late night discussion that took place just before lockdown, Scott and a couple of friends uh, started up a Facebook group to discuss early. I want to discuss 90s Australian independent music and the Facebook group just grew like to 10,000 members inside like a couple of months, including a lot of musicians. So uh, as a result of that, they've put together a couple of CDs and it's going to be an ongoing project uh, in a series called Sound As Ever and basically these are compilations of australian independent artists but songs that basically were hidden in the shoebox stuff that they never released at the time but songs they were ultimately still very proud of it just couldn't fit onto a project so we have these uh compilations of some great name bands some that i knew some that i didn't but it's just all like an alternative history of uh, australian independent music from the 90s so we'll be speaking about those compilations and uh Australian 90s music in general so I'm looking forward to that.
2: Well thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please sign on over to our website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.